Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an independent record label. And sometimes we do these episodes called Industry Insiders, where instead of talking to actual record labels, we talk to the different companies and organizations and service providers who serve record labels, who help us do our thing. And today's topic is all about mastering, but specifically mastering for record labels. So that means mastering for TikTok videos, believe it or not, mastering for vinyl. And we even talk about what happens if we want to be super prolific and release just a bunch of stuff. Do we have to get everything mastered? So we cover a lot of great topics. And my guest today is John Tornblum, a buddy of mine who's an incredible analog mastering engineer, owns a company called Transparent Mastering. And you can find out more about them. He's in our directory at otherrecordlabels.com slash directory. I've worked with him before. All my friends work with him. He does incredible stuff, has an incredibly beautiful studio with so much cool gear, all analog. And uh, we talk about that as well. Also, you can get all of my resources and everything that we discuss in today's episode by going to otherrecordlabels.com slash mastering. That's otherrecordlabels.com slash mastering. And I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Anyway, okay, mastering. Let's talk mastering. You know, it's so funny. Um, our listeners don't know this. Our viewers don't know this, but we're like five minutes away from each other. And yet we, re- yeah. <laughs> we refuse to leave our studios, which is a good thing, I think. Oh, yeah. I like <laughs> it, wasn't, it, in here. it wasn't I even a, like it, here. it wasn't even a conversation. It wasn't even like, should we get together? It's like, no, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> <You don't> even, <laughs> uh, which I love. It's good. But that's uh, one of the, my one of my favorite things from COVID is it's normalized not having to leave your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or your in your case your uh, studio. Um, let's okay. Let's talk about mastering. Um, and what I really and this is fun because I think for some of our listeners, um, I want you to define mastering as best as you can. You have forty five minutes. Go ahead. But. Uh, <laughs> I, I want you to define mastering and, and as it relates to, of course, to indie artists and indie record labels. Um, but it's kind of a fun exercise too, because as I was thinking about it, I was like, well, for me, mastering means something different than maybe what it means to you or maybe what it the by the book means. Um, but so so kind of give us a little bit of a a 101 on mastering, if you will. Um, yeah, so I thought of, I thought I would approach this from a different angle, you know, than what you would just find if you went to chat GPT and was like, what is that? <laughs> you know? So, um, because <laughs> I, I like do. thinking about this stuff from like a, a high level, like almost philosophical kind of point of view. Um, there is no, like finding a standard, like a true standard is, is like a mythical thing, mm. you know, it's mm-hmm. like this thing that we reach for, but we'll never, we'll never grasp it because what is perfect audio? And it's really complicated. Mm. Like we can talk about that, but we're not going to. It's just really complicated. Yeah. Sound is very, very interactive with its environment. Mm. And our brains and ears are all different and are all nonlinear. So every room we're in, every speaker setup we're in, uh, every person's anatomy, we're all a little bit different. Mm. And besides that, we all have different preferences as well. Um, so like what, what do we have for the standard? So we could try to measure things, right? We could try to like measure it and build a room that is, according to the physics is perfect and measure it and do all that kind of stuff, which is great. But then you're measuring it with electronics that have physical, mechanical, electronic interactions as well. It's really complicated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, and, but here's the thing is you can get really close, but the people that get really close are like scientists right. doing this, right? right? And it's not your bedroom producer or your singer songwriter that bought a microphone down at Long and McQuaid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it's awesome. We have these amazing tools, very accessible to everybody with really good results. But um, the, the like standardized thing is hard to grasp. Mm. And so the idea here is that we're making music, uh, you know, with sound in rooms. It's highly interactive. We're listening to it back in the same room. We're doing all of these things that um, are probably not even close to this like kind of like technical standard. And so you can end up with stuff getting uh, kind of goofed up along the way. And it's not even the, the fault of the person doing it. They're, they're hearing it right. It's maybe not informing them mm-hmm. correctly, right? But they're trying to work it according to how they're hearing it. And so the idea of a mastering engineer, I guess from like a kind of a technical perspective, is that uh, it's like quality control, but we've 
spent the time instead of learning the craft. I mean, we might have learned how to be songwriters and musicians and stuff like that. But the idea is our professional effort is not towards crafting artistry, mm-hmm. right? And, and like writing music and all of those kinds of things. It's been setting up something that is really close to that technical standard. So we can listen to the music, be critical of it and be like, oh, I see what you're going for, but we need a little nuance there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of the, yeah. Quality, quality assurance. That's a kind of an interesting standpoint. And, and uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, or, or even a building inspector, right? You might look at this house, you might go, wow, this, this house looks great. And the building inspector comes along and goes, see these cracks, (laughs) this is going to collapse. I, I, I remember uh, when we did a project together um, and it's honestly like it, it, I paid you for the one song, but I feel like I got more out of it because I, I now will look out for this because it was this like whistle in my voice. And when I sing, I have a whistle and I actually can't think I, it's been a while since I've mixed something. So I, I can't remember the frequency, but you can see it and it's, you can hear it on almost every song. And to a point where it's like now I default just will so go and grab it and dip it because it was coming out for you. And, and I remember you pointed that out. And um, and again, I think what one of the things I just want to clarify for our listeners is that mastering is, correct me if, if you think this is wrong, but I feel like mastering is one piece of a of a whole puzzle that makes a beautiful listening experience and sometimes it might be the living room that you're sitting in sometimes it might be um you know the the time of year you're listening to music but also you know how the the singer and the, the qualities of the singer's voice and the melody and the instrumentation the mix all of these things mastering is just one component so you know that whistling thing is there are some records I work on where I do want to get as close to that standard that you were referring to and and that whistling is is um, it, that's breaking a rule, you know. For me, that's that's um, that's getting in the way of me achieving this beautiful listening experience for the listener. Um, yeah. Anyway, I love. I always think about that little whistle. Yeah, that's that's a good point too because it's kind of. I mean, I have a few layers of meaning with my name because I'm one of those people. You know. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like I like the like uh, metaphorical stuff. But anyways, uh, one component of the transparent mastering thing is is like, there shouldn't be anything getting in the way. Like yeah. say that whistle. That's a good point. Like, like if it's gonna distract them from the word you're saying, we, it's gotta go because you gotta be seeing just the song and yep. what the person's trying to communicate. Yeah. Um, which actually leads me to my other, so that's kind of like, there's two sides of the coin. Sure. The first, that was the technical side I was kind of talking about. But there's another side that's similar, but instead of it being like physics of audio and air mm. kind of stuff, it's more like, um, uh, it's, it's, trying to do that but emotionally with the artist mm. if, you, if you see what i'm saying interesting so um the artist it and the mix engineer like the team that's and producer everybody that's working on it they have a vision and it's not always this hi-fi technical perfection sometimes it's lo-fi and extremely vibey and one and the, the i think the very first band that was my own band you know grade seven mm-hmm. you're just discovering music was eric's trip and i don't know if you know about eric's trip but they're like a lo-fi Canadian act from out on the East Coast. Okay, sounds familiar. Yeah, and it's like everything was done on like a Tascam, like right, four right, track, right, on right, cassette, right? right? So I like, one of my first forays into music is like very technically not correct. Yeah. But like tons of vibe, you know, to sure. use like catchword or whatever. There's like yeah. a lot of emotional feel to the flaws in the production. Yeah. So on the other side of mastering, the other side of the coin is it's my job to be able to feel and understand why the song is the way it is when I get it. Mm. So if I get it and it's been creatively shaped to not sound like the audio equivalent of a photorealistic painting, yeah, yeah. maybe impressionistic, I got to be like, ah, I, yeah. I understand. Yeah. So now my standards change and I got to go, yeah, the highs are rolled off or something like that. Yeah. But I can predict that the listener will feel that's a little too rolled off or not quite enough. And so I got to empathize with the the person who's been oh, making these decisions. So you're a conduit. Sure that, yeah, I got to try to make sure that like what they were vibing with comes through, per- clearly comes through transparently, right? Like oh. it's not my vision, you know? So sometimes people get stuff sound- coming back and it sounds a bit different. Yeah. And I'm like, listen, this is a little bit different, but I actually think that if you give this a chance, you realize this is, what you're going for, yeah. but there was something in the way, right? But yeah. if I'm wrong, and I'm, sometimes I'm wrong, which is fine, yeah. but I pitch it, you know, yeah. it's like, this is what I think you're going for. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it's, it's fun. <laughs> I, one of my critiques of mastering engineers 
is um, when I send, and this is just my workflow, but when I send a mix, I quite frankly think that that mix is 99.9% perfect. And uh, based on my abilities, I feel like this mix is perfect. And I often wonder, and I don't know, I, this is not an accusation. Well, perhaps it is. But I wonder if if mastering engineers, if you were to send me back a track that doesn't sound any different, um, I would be happy with that. But then I could understand that you would feel like maybe you're not earning your rent, uh, your pay. And so I'm wondering, like, would you do things so that the listener gets it back or the customer gets it back and goes, wow, this is exciting it's kind of different what you're saying here but you understand what i'm saying is this making any sense it's yeah like it makes it makes perfect sense so so first of all i gotta quote bob katz on this because i think it's a perfect okay. thing about mastering half your clients are going to be mad that it doesn't sound different and the other half are going to be mad that it does sound different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's exactly what i'm saying yeah okay <laughs> so, so uh yeah w when we start there it's kind of like yeah but i do want to feel like the i have earned my money yeah but the Good news is there's almost always something you can do. And uh, I, I leveled up, you know, like we go through these stages and you, you get these little like jump ups in yeah. your abilities and your how you can listen and the clients you're working with and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of got into this level where now I'm getting like really good mixes all the time. Mm. You know, like people are sending me stuff and it is like 99.9% yeah. .9 there. Right. And I'm going like, well, what am I going to do with this? And honestly, sometimes I send stuff back and be like, great mix. The main thing was to not destroy this with a limiter. Yeah. So I did a bunch of like sometimes that's harder. Yeah. To like boost it up to like minus eight LUFS or whatever yeah. and not have it sound different. Right. Like that can be harder sometimes. But um other times, uh I'm like, I feel like I should do something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What is there? So I started listening for different issues than I did previously. So when you first start working on audio, uh, well, let's say when you first start mastering, um, you're working on tonality and loudness, right? And you, you probably don't really know how compression works in like a really subtle way yet. Mm. So you're really just trying to get the tonality right. And then you're trying to get like the loudness up there without distorting or anything. Then you get into dynamics and stuff like that and like making stuff groove in a way that doesn't sound like you've dicked around with the dynamics yeah. too much, right? Yeah. Um, and But then I realized that there's this other whole thing, which is like, how the soundstage is spread in space and the mm -hmm. shape of it. Like mm -hmm. you can shape the soundstage and you can increase how far front to back things are wow. and everything like that. And there's a there's like, um, hopefully the mix engineer is deliberate about it, but whether they're deliberate or, deliberate or not, you always create a presentation. Mm -hmm. Like your brain always interprets it as, where is the audio coming from in real life? Mm. A, a great example of this is, um, uh, was it backdrifting? By Radiohead, okay. they have like some acoustic elements. I think it's that one. Anyways, whatever. Or how yeah. about where I end and you begin? That's sure. a good one. I know that's right. So you got this acoustic drum loop, mm -hmm. very very drums in a room, and you can visualize it in the room, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a real thing you can picture. And then you have these synth sounds coming, and they're all swirling around, but they sound like they're inside your head, mm -hmm. which is very artistically good because it's kind of got this feeling of insanity. Yeah. Like I have reality out there, which is like the band playing acoustically <laughs> in a room. And then these synths are like swirling around in your head, yeah. right? It's very effective, but we're always doing that. And what I find a lot of time is even with like the most talented mix engineer sending me like the most perfect mix, there's a little bit of tweakage I can do with the space of the sound. Mm. And it took me a really long time to get there, but I, cool. I think I've had I've had yet to get something where I didn't have something to add, even if it's just like the tiniest little smidge. Like um, your soundstage now sounds more like an oval, yeah. that's you know deeper. You know what I mean? Like I feel like we're 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 more in the room than we were before. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, so no, I totally get it. And I think I think you can are are you you're getting to a really good sonic point as a as an artist or a mix engineer, when you hire a session musician, but you only want them for a few notes here and there, because the song is so perfect and we just want a sax just here, just there, not all over. And the same thing when you when it gets to applying a plug-in on your mix bus, it's like, if it's only doing a delicate touch, you know you've got a great track. And then when you send it to Transparent Mastering and he's just making it an oval, then you know you got a great track, right? Like that's uh, that's kind of how I try on some types of music, not all types of music. Yeah, um, there's another interesting aspect about that too, which is the um, what do you what are you being paid for? 
Mm. Like, so most of us work hourly jobs and we're used to value based on hourly effort. Mm. Um, but then you have people like consultants, which get paid on, based on their value. So if you can walk into, I don't know, some industrial manufacturing place and be like, hey, if you do this, you'll save $150,000 a year. And I figured that out in an hour and my bill is $50,000 yeah. and you, you'll you make it back in three months or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's not an hourly thing. It's right. a value thing. And uh, what I've heard said about mastering is they're paying you for your like check mark on the song. Yes, I 100% agree. As, 100% agree. The, as much work as it takes or as little work as it takes, the check mark is what is what you're paying for. Yes, this that's is beautiful. Yeah, Senator. no, great point. Great point. Now you brought up chat GPT. So I'm, this permission for me to talk about AI for one moment. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, because... Funny enough, I mean, the conversation around this time right now is AI everything. It's like the buzzword. Um, but I feel like AI has been kind of threatening mastering for longer than it's been threatening writers and journalists and artists because um, of Lander and, and some of these online stuff and plugins. I feel like it's slowed down a little bit now. But is it something you're kind of, um, do you have a defense mechanism set up yet? Or, or what is your your thoughts about like uh, a plugin that, that, that gives it that check mark or even is a little bit creative in the way that you are? Um, not yet. Like no. not, not even close. No. Um, so I actually just did a song like it was either last week or the week before. Um, and they said that they got a lander master as their reference track from the mix engineer. Right. Oh, okay. And in my, in, in, when I sent back the actual master, one of my notes was, um, yeah, I, uh, I kind of like chilled the kick out a bit and like smoothed it out and made mm -hmm. it less punchy. Like a lot of time I'm trying to make the kick more punchy because I yeah, love punchy. Right, yeah. right, but I'm like, I kind of tamed your kick a bit because this is like a tender ballad, not a not like a club banger. Yeah. Like Lander Master made that kick. She's singing and playing piano. It's all like lovely and delicate. And then the kick comes in like, now it's like a Skrillex concert. Like it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and I'm just yeah. like, because Lander doesn't know what she's doing. Right, right, just, right. It's, you know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's automated. So, yeah. so far, it's like really not very, it, just, it has no taste. It can't have any That's taste. That's right. Yeah. And then second of all, um, I kind of feel like Lander plays to the idea of not shocking people as well. Because mm. probably because like it can't make big changes because it doesn't have an, a, like a real creative intelligence behind it. Right. So it does some pretty standard things. Let's make sure everything's within these parameters. Yeah. But it doesn't, it just doesn't like, it. that doesn't guarantee an engaging mm -hmm. sound. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's a great point. And that's one of my things. I, I think the danger is when AI knows what you should do, and then decides to do the opposite. That's when it will get, to me is when AI has will take over is because I feel like that's what we do great as creatives is that I, I'm up here in the studio, this is the right keyboard part, now let's run it through a fuzz pedal. Wait a second, everybody's running keyboards through fuzz pedals, let's not run it through a fuzz pedal. It's that ability to um, be creative on the spot and to do something completely left of center or something that's maybe used to be too traditional and now is cool again. So yeah, oh, wait, wait, but yes. And yeah, exactly. That's when it's a threat and that's why it's not a threat. That's why none of the AI things are threat. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the whole open AI thing that most of the stuff is based on is being trained and I'm not an expert. Okay. <laughs> Neither am I. I'm a mastering expert, not yes. a, yes. not an AI expert. But anyway, <laughs> if the idea is that it's been trained on a, a enormous amount of data created by people, it's only an imitator, a, right. an extremely sophisticated imitator. Right. But right now it's not doing new things. It only is recombining things. And maybe in a way you haven't seen, right. but it's not new. And yeah. um, if you had, like the reason why we keep listening to the blues, for example, mm. or like uh, folky singer songwriters that are just strumming the same chords on their guitar and singing, is because it's a new song. Right. It's a new expression mm. of humanity yeah and you can't like so if you got a like ai to just like create a singer songwriter song it's like well that is the boring version of it because it's a rehash right but there you're not you're not the song thing isn't new the song is right. also a rehash yeah you see what i mean yeah i i think it's gonna make a good standard for people to if they you know if they play a song and be like is this any good well it's like well if it sounds like the ai version then it's not good you're not <laughs> you're not being different enough 
Okay, yeah. let me, let's shift all the way from AI all the way to analog. <laughs> and your studio is, and well, the last time we talked and the last time I visited your studio, you were all analog. Uh, and maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody threw something digital in there in the last couple of years. But um, tell me about that mindset. And also, I want to kind of understand how all of your analog gear uh, matters in a primarily digital world. Ah, yeah. Okay, that's a good one. Um, so first of all, like uh, all analog can be a little deceiving because I'm pitching and catching from digital, right? right? I'm not okay. doing it from tape. Yeah. So some people would sure. say that, like, yeah. be, like all analog means from tape. That's fair. Um, and I, I'll, I will use plugins too, but I, I do have like a limiter, like an analog limiter. So I've had requests. Can you do this all analog? And I love that because it's, it's right. fun. Right. Um, but anyways, enough of that. That's sure. <laughs> um, so the reason why I like uh, analog is. Um, because remember earlier we were talking about how everything is very, very interactive. Mm. Like there are interactions that are happening on, in an extremely subtle way with real physics. Mm. Whereas, um, when you're working in digital, everything is calculated according to the rules that have been set forth to calculate it. Right. And it's great. It's like, I love a lot of aspects of digital audio processing for that very reason. It's mm. extremely predictable and right. reliable. Right. Um, but there are funny things that happen, you know, um, like speaking, I'll give, I'll give an analog to audio, which is like some weirdly crazy meta thing, but, um, with sound. So I was, I was testing the room, I was testing my hearing kind of at the same time. Cause they kind of go hand in hand mm -hmm. and, um, I'm getting really up, you know, close to the top of the spectrum around 18 kilohertz ish. I start not being able to hear it anymore. Okay. okay? So I obviously don't have superhuman hearing. Right. Okay. So I'm doing this, but I keep going up because I'm like measuring the room yeah. as well. And um, I get to like 21, 22, which is where I'm just going to stop. And um, I see that on the function generator, there's this wobble button. Now it's not a warble. So mm. in audiology, there's a thing called a warble tone, which is two sine waves being played that like interact with each other and create a beat that's lower. Mm. That's warble. I'm not talking that wobble. All it does is it goes, wee, 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 wee. It's like vibrato. Right. On the note. Right. At, at 22 kilohertz, I turn on, I can hear it plain as day that there's, that there's sound happening in the room. I could turn it on. It's like not, it's not vague or ambiguous at all. Wow. Like just by, the, by, just by the fluctuations of the volume. Yes. So you, I'm saying you should come down here and check it yeah. out. So you can hear for yourself. Like it's, it was not, I'm like, it's, this isn't me being, having really good ears. This yeah. is, there's something going on here that I didn't expect. So I look, look on the digital side to see if there's like aliasing or any of those other artifacts on the digital side that can be creating sound in the audio spectrum. I can hear nothing there. So what does that mean? That means that there's something about sound in either sound and air that's more nuanced than we thought hmm. that a static sine wave can't be heard. Right. Mm -hmm. um, or else I have supersonic hearing, mm -hmm. which I, I discredit the second one right. in advance. So there's, there must be something about how we test hearing that we that isn't happening. Like there's something in the air happening that's more complicated than we thought. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I don't think it's like my speakers or my amp changing it is because the, it would do the same thing to the static tone and I would be able to hear that as well. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't do it when it's not moving mm -hmm. and I can't hear it. And then when it does move, I can't hear it. So something happening there. And this is what I mean. What I'm getting at is there's these things that happen and we're like, what? And uh, electricity is really, really like that. Mm. Because uh, a lot of the time when we think about electricity, we just think about the electrons flowing through the wires. But any time a charged particle flows, it creates a magnetic field. And what does a magnetic field do? It induces charges onto conductors. So anytime you pass audio th through a wire, through a real wire, you've created something incredibly complicated. Even if it's at like a tiny, tiny, minuscule scale, right. you've still done it. Um, like... <sighs> I had a, I was talking to an amp designer mm -hmm. and um, they said that like, what people don't realize about a tube amp is that the circuit from the pickup on your guitar all the way to the speaker and all the way back to the pickup is one circuit. Like there's like a circuit that interacts all the way from front to back both ways. Mm. It's not from the guitar to the amp and out the speaker. Right. It's from the guitar and then when it hits the speaker, the speaker is like pushing back on it and it makes it all the way back to the guitar pickup. Does it make it there in a significant way? No, it might be like a billionth of a percent of change in sound, but it's there. Right. What I'm saying is with this 
audio warble thing yeah. or the wobble tone. I'm saying this stuff matters. The yeah. weird things we never would have thought of, they make a difference. Now, does it matter? I don't know. That's like a really long thing for me to yeah. talk. You're like, yeah. does it actually matter? It might not matter. Yeah. But what I like is I like the complexity of audio. Mm. And I like the idea of having transformers and tubes and even solid state stuff isn't as straightforward as people think it is. Yeah. And you can let the magic of physics happen. Mm. I love I love just allowing the magic of physics to happen. And that's why I like analog. One of the, thank you for that, by the way, I, 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 I zoned out for a little bit, but, um, yeah, it was a bit random. You have to edit that down. Like, heavily. Right. <laughs> somebody out there, somebody out there is loving it. Um, you know, no, I mean, one of the things why I defended gear, uh, back when we used to do the studio tours and I have racks of gear and some of it doesn't get used very often. I have lots of gear in here that doesn't get used more than once or twice a year. Uh, and I try to change that, but there is gear in here, but I have defended a lot of the um, collecting of gear. And, and I often refer to vintage gear and your gear as beautiful, physically attractive. And my defense of that is that it inspires creativity. And I love being up here in my space. I love being in your space. I find it inspires you. And so when we talk about the intangible of what you're doing, your, your job is creative. And to, to answer your question, does it matter? Well, maybe on paper it matters, maybe uh, um, uh, uh, granular it matters, maybe when you zoom out a little bit, it doesn't matter. When the fans are listening through their iPhone speakers, it doesn't matter. Um, but if it, it, it informs, to me, it informs the creative process and in intangible ways. So yeah, I, I'm a defender. I, no, I, I totally agree with you. And you know what? Here's a, here's a more concise answer along those lines as well. And I totally believe this one as well, is that when I work with my hands on controls mm -hmm. and I'm flying by sound instead of sight, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I do better work. Yeah. And like there's the, the, the inspired aspect of it. You, you absolutely cannot get rid of it. That's like the whole discussion we just had about AI. Yeah. It's the, it's the extremely subtle nuances of humanity that makes art enjoyable. Mm. Just like it's the extremely subtle nuances of how we create art that makes it enjoyable. Yep. So if you are feeling the the, just a smidge more creative, it's going to come through and the humans that listen to it will understand because we understand each other. Yeah. Right? So yeah. if you're vibing with your, you know, whatever it is, say you got some like telly and you borrowed it and you wrote this song on the telly because of the way the action was and the yeah. way it played, like that happens. People ha write all different the music on different instruments. All so the time. Yeah. Hand somebody a different guitar, you get a different song. Yeah. Right. That all adds up. Yeah. And when I'm working on this stuff, I am like, I love it. I yep. love doing it. Yeah. And that's come through in my work too. People that I'm going, click, 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 click. You know what I mean? I'm like, people write better songs, different songs, any songs in bathrooms, just because the the feedback, the reverb that they're getting changes or or it, it creates a harmony to the the note they sang before. I'm, I mean, the real world is so. Yeah important and there's no there's no um it's no coincidence that vinyl popularity of vinyl skyrocketed a few years after the invention of the ipod there's you know and the same thing with when ebooks came out or e-readers everyone thought that's it for books and it's like and the opposites happen everyone's like no 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 we got to have that paper book you know what i mean and there's it's just yeah there's too much yeah. around it when you when you lose the subtle nuance you can't help but notice. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I think all of the AR, AI art thing is fantastic for art. It's actually amazing for art because I think that when we play this out, everybody's going to shift back so hard to things like analog and live mm. music yeah. and working together in a space instead yeah. of doing interviews over Zoom. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like all artificial life can do yeah. remind us how much more vibrant and rich real life is. Right, yeah. Well, I, I, I hope you're right. I hope that in five years that the AI robots aren't watching this and laughing. Um, okay, so let's, um, oh my gosh, we're, we're, uh, we're covering so much here. Um, so real quickly, I mentioned the iPhone speakers. Um, how does good mastering impact or does it impact, um, and this is kind of going back to the very beginning that we asked, uh, when the listener, you can't control the environment, right? So, so when the listener is listening and I'm, I'm hearing, I know that people listen out of the bottom of their speakers. I, I mean, sometimes when I'm lying in bed on, 
on new release Friday and I want I want to just check out a track. I do as well. Um, I would say 50% of the music I listen to is on AirPods and 50% is on my turntable in my living room where I'm not sitting in the middle. So tell me how does, uh, when people are listening on laptop speakers, how does your job, how does that impact your job? Um, well, the, the good news is that, um, a good master should translate well, mm -hmm. but the real question is whether it should be optimized for those things. And I've had people request that, okay, like, um, okay. I want this optimized for uh, phone speakers. Um, okay. So That's the idea funny. is if you, get, if you get a good tonal balance, it should sound, it, um, <laughs> just imagine you're a manufacturer trying to make some audio playback system. Like you're going to base it on the most common kind of audio that's out there. Yeah. So as long as you master it within the zone of what's most common, you're yeah. within what the manufacturer was intending. So it's not, you don't need to think really hard about it. Okay. But there are some serious limitations with extreme reproduction systems like tiny speakers and phones and stuff like mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and namely like just tons of distortion and the frequency is, the, the spectrum's rolled off on the top and bottom, or at right. least on the bottom. And, um, yeah, we can do stuff to make it work a lot better on phone speakers, but it might sound really silly on like a real stereo. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. Um, so like a great example for this is like, if you if you just want to make something sound great on a phone, and I'll do this. Sometimes I'll offer people like, you want me to do a social media master? It's like the cost of a revision. And basically all it is, is me cutting like the high mids, like 2K and finding the right spot so that it sounds as right as possible. Oh. But that zone just distorts phone speakers so easily. Yeah. So if you yeah. cut that down as much as you can without ruining the vibe of the song, then it, it's going to come through way cleaner on tiny speakers. And it'll actually sound good on big speakers too, but what you lose is that region is a bit dangerous, not just for distortion because our ears are so sensitive, sensitive to it. But you know that like... like uh, with, with great risk comes great reward. Yeah. That's what that zone is all about. So yeah, you can make it sound really polite. Mm -hmm. Don't ever store it on phone speakers. But when you listen to it on a real system, it's going to lack the potential it could have. Right, yeah. So do you want to optimize it for these tiny speakers? It's like, maybe not. Because when somebody pulls up to like a huge sound system to finally hear their song that got mastered, do you want, like, they should have the maximum experience. Yeah. Okay? But we don't want to put a ceiling on it. I get that request though. I mean, I laughed when you first said it, but now I'm thinking, well, hold on a second. A lot of people are <clears throat> discovering music on TikTok and they're yeah. trying to and they're trying to get their own music um, promoted on TikTok. So that, I guess that's not absurd to think no, that people are discovering most of their music for the first time on their phone speakers. Yeah, and you can't like, you can't just be a snob. Yeah, like, that's right. It's good. Like yeah. as a mastering engineer, I have to like hold this tension between being a total snob yeah. and being real, like a, 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 an engineer for the people. You know what good I mean? Point. Like. Good point. Um, yeah, and so like if people are doing oops, if people are doing yeah, that, yeah, we got we got to make it a good experience for them because that's the job. It's not my job isn't to be a snob. It's to make a good experience for the listener. If people were in your studio and saw how your studio is laid out, I think they would decide that you're probably a little closer to the snob side. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you have a bunch of iPhones on TikTok lying around testing out music. Yeah. It's quite a beautiful little setup there. Um, anyway, so that's what I was going to ask you about YouTube and Spotify. Uh, and I, I want to ask you, and you, so you, you can roll this all into one if you want, but I want to ask you about mastering for vinyl um, because that's a big thing for our listeners, myself included, and maybe what we should keep in mind if we're mastering for vinyl or if we're getting ready for our audio to go to Bandcamp, which is FLAC and, and AIFF and, and also Spotify and also vinyl. So let's talk about a little bit about that, but also does Spotify and or YouTube uh, change anything? Do we need to consider anything for those platforms? Um, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. So um, they, because of this loudness normalization thing, uh, if you make it too loud, which is the case for most, anybody's getting it mastered, it's going to end up too loud. If anything, mm -hmm. they just turn it down. Okay. So the problem is, this is this. There was a, a lot of like propaganda to try to change the way the industry views mastering, which is good, mm -hmm. but it was a little bit manipulative. Okay, this is one of my controversial opinions. Okay. My hot take. Please. Okay, here's a hot take. Please. Okay. The the effort to end the loudness wars was largely accomplished through fear mongering about loudness. Okay. And so these these uh, streaming services come out with loudness normalization standards, and we get the loudness penalty. Ooh, does that ever sound pejorative? Okay. <laughs> How about this? 
Uh, yeah, they'll turn your song down and it will sound exactly the same, just quieter. Right. So what does that actually mean? It means if you just make sure the master sounds good, then it will sound good. Right. And actually nobody needs to worry about anything except making it sound bad, which was what we should have been worried about in the first place. But we forgot to be worried about that because it was about loudness. Right. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, and so the part of me that's like idealistic is like, and punk rock is like, like, screw you guys. You, you're lying to all of us to try to like make your job better. Mm. But I don't actually think that. I'm like, people don't respond to you being like, hey, you know what? It'll sound better if you make it quieter. Because guess what they were trying for like 15 years before that was just being like, hey, it sounds better or quieter. People are like, I just want it loud, mm. right? Yeah. So what do you do? You, you, you got to try to fix the problem. So I don't disagree because they tried not being manipulative. Like, we, like all the mastering engineers, I started in 2008, but like from 2000 to like maybe 2012, all the mastering engineers were trying really hard to get everybody to chill out on the loudness stuff. Right. Okay. Um, mastering for vinyl then, like tell me a little bit about mastering for vinyl. Uh, um, is What should we keep in mind there? I mean, I, when, I, when I send it off, uh, at the very least, I'm, I'm using a, um, the higher... Uh, I'm doing like 28, sorry, 2448 as opposed to 1644 for uh, DSPs. Um, but what can you tell us about vinyl? Um, okay, so that, that's a great question. I feel like a lot of people address mastering for vinyl just from the mastering perspective, but it's really um, something we should be planning from the very start with our arrangements and everything. Mm. So producers should be aware of whether the song is going to vinyl or not, if the album is going to vinyl. Because um, if you create music that relies really uh, heavily on sub bass, for example, mm -hmm. it's going to have a really hard time translating well to vinyl, mm. right? Um, and so there's certain strategies that you can take from the beginning of not making things too ultra high frequency or too ultra low frequency oriented right. and keep like the, the main body of the music in the mid range because that's what vinyl does really well. Mm. Um, so that's a consideration. Yeah. Um, but in terms of mastering, basically what we just what we need to do is make sure that uh, those spots are tame enough that we're not just gonna like create distortion or any other artifacts uh, with the needle in the groove. Right. Because um, high frequencies will distort very easily and so on. Um, and then the other thing is just uh, we don't want to like like vinyl's really prone to distortion because imagine the needle moving around in the groove right. and then imagine you have hard limiting that's like squared off like what's what's the needle going to do there right it's going to be like bouncing right. off that hard edge right and what is it what is that squiggly line looks like oh it looks like distortion you know what i mean right. like this, this is what's going to happen so we just try to keep the levels down we keep the extreme ends under control right Right. And that's that's really what people should expect when they get vinyl masters back or when they're mastering something for vinyl is like, we're going to have to chill out those things. Yeah, yeah. Most of the time it works out great because most music is very mid-range oriented, but mm. every now and then you'll get, you know, somebody sends you some drum and bass stuff and they, they expect it to sound the same. And it's like, it can, but it's going to be quiet on the record. Right, that's right. Or, yeah. or and then here's another, one of the other considerations is this, the length of the side, yeah. right? Like if you want to run it at uh, a 12-inch, at 45 and have two songs uh, per side, mm -hmm. yeah, crank that sub bass. We can do this. Yeah. Like, we can we can do this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So something that you plan from the start of the project. But if you're planning on that, guess what your budget's gonna be for vinyl if you're putting two songs per side, right? It's I not know. gonna be cheap. No, and and uh, I that's so good to say, like be thinking from the very beginning, because I think that way with track listing. I mean, you have to think like, you know, we can't fit this many songs, or we can't fit this type of song at minute 20 on side yeah. a it's yeah. gonna sound like crap uh and so i'm always thinking about the track listing or thinking you know and they did this a lot in the 90s or in the 80s um where the vinyl had a different track listing than the yeah the cd version or the tape version which is don't okay. you love that though? i love it it's, it's yeah. a reason to go by the vinyl yeah or to, or leave a song off you know like because it yeah. didn't fit and they didn't want to do two discs or something okay um Let's here's one of the things I've heard in our community. So we have a community of of indie record labels who represent artists. And one of the things I talk about a lot is um, I'm looking at the wrong camera because we switch, switch cameras. I feel like a, like a news broadcaster is like, where am I? Where's my red light? Um, but one of the things that um, I talk about a lot is this idea of like amortizing your investment in making a record. And one of the ways you can do that is obviously you release the primary 
10 song record, but then you can also release an instrumental version of that record and it'll make a little bit of money, but it'll be fun and it'll give you something to talk about on social media. You can release a stripped down acoustic version or, or, or send the stems off and get them remixed. This idea of like, you've invested this time in writing and recording these songs in studio and, and session musicians, there's more ways we can exploit this, these masters uh, and for licensing as well. However, one of the caveats of that is that, well, there's the, the wall of mastering. Every time that we do redo an acoustic version or an instrumental version, it there's still that $75 a track, $100 a track, you know, $500 an album, whatever, um, that people bump into. And I encourage labels and artists to be prolific. Um, I feel like there are some, you know, I don't know if Lander's the solution, but I feel like there's some songs that aren't a priority in, the, in how they're released. And I, and I, I want to encourage labels to be prolific, but not uh, increase their expenses a lot. What do you suggest to that? Yeah, it's a, that's a great, uh, it's a great question. And I, I think that if I was like having, you know, the mastering engineers of the world listening to me say this right now, they they might not be happy. Okay. But honestly, this is the best use of Lander. Mm. There's like, there's a ton of audio that needs something, yeah. but it doesn't need the full, the full Monty, so yeah. to speak. I appreciate you that. Know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. I think that if like for the, your main release, uh, you know, like, yeah, we should, it should be the best that it can be, but you're like pushing stems out to get remixed by EDM artists. Like why master that? Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean, or, um, yeah. or you have like bonus tracks at the end, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's what, like, does, does it need it? Right. It is. And sometimes if it's like a, a really big album, like say it's the, the bands, you know, like they're like, we want this to be like our magnum opus. Oh, or sure. Whatever. Yeah. Then maybe you'll want to do that. But like a lot of the time it just doesn't matter that much. And that's okay. And again, it's like this idea of being a snob on one hand, but being an engineer for the people on the yeah. other hand, I'm like, you know, Lander is probably good for things like people putting out podcasts and people like recording a song a week and you know what I mean? Yeah, and all that kind point. of stuff. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I, and I really I actually appreciate you saying that. And I was curious, I know this is a conversation we've had in our community before, and I was curious of what your response was, because I mean, you don't want to put yourself out of a job, but I do appreciate you saying that <laughs> because uh, I would agree. I a hundred percent agree. And uh, I, you know, I know a guy who released a demo that he uh, like a three song EP that he recorded, uh, I want to say garage band or the equivalent. And, uh, it was a, it was a great little way for him to get into releasing something. And he just put it on Bandcamp Cause even, um, you know, even, uh, Spotify and Apple music costs money, whereas Bandcamp is hundred percent free. So, um, just to upload. So, you know, he, he released this, this album and I, I asked him like who mastered it. And he's like, what is that? Like he just, you know, uploaded the MP3s. So yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I'm glad that you said that. I completely agree. And I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's important for us to know wh what we are, Yeah, you know, and, um, when it comes to art, I'm all about art. And I'm, even though I, I make a living doing mastering and a, I want money to be a really big part of music, I also want money to not, to be a very small part of music. Uh, because art, this I, I think we've all gotten a little too obsessed with monetizing art. Mm. Um, and the reason I say it is like, some people go out and their goal is to make money off it. And yes, awesome. But there's a bunch of people that actually just want to write songs in their living room and record them and have them for their friends or their family to listen to. But there's this weird pressure from society that's like, if you're not trying to monetize this, it's a waste of time. Right, right. It's like not a waste of time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like art, art, art. Everybody create all the time. Doodle like you did in high school. Like do stuff all the time. Yeah. And like my position is not like every piece of music that's recorded should be mastered. Right. I'm like, are you ready? for like your like the thing you've been laboring on your labor of love are you ready to finish it yeah right like this is what i'm here for yeah i'm here for like making this as good as it can be because this is like your your like passion project not just like art casual art and we all need casual art we have yeah. to do it it's yeah. part of being human oh, i love you that I mean? and, and money I, shouldn't interfere with that at all yeah i i um often say, and, and I don't think, you know, if people understand the context, they won't be too offended by it. But to me, it's quantity over quality, but I would say it's quantity 
first, quality second. You know what I mean? I think if if you if the quality is stopping you from releasing anything, then that's a problem. Yeah, it's so true. Yes. I get I wanna, it out there. You I, I want to close with the last the going back to the first thing we were talking about, um, about mastering. Um, just to oversimplify it for some of our listeners and for <clears throat> myself, if I'm being honest. But I think that mastering. One of the things I love about mastering is throwing up all 10 songs from an album or an EP into a session uh, and hearing them all together one after another. And and you you went back to, I think when you were advocating for the people, you're advocating for their listening experience. And so one of the things I value mastering for the most is having consistent EQ or a consistent vibe or tone and volume level across all 10 songs so that you can lay back in a hammock with AirPods and not be jarred out of track three. You know what yeah. I mean? That's what yeah. I value primarily. The the loudness stuff, whatever, it's, it's consistency. Yeah, that is my favorite part of the job. And it's like, sometimes it hurts my heart a little that I just deal with singles so much, yeah, like right. way more than albums now because I love that part of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's great that you bring that up because, you know, you're your podcast goes out to a lot of label owners as well. And that is a, that is super important for the album experience. But I would also venture that um, a label wants to also have a vibe. Mm. And um, I think it's really, I think it's a really, if I was a label owner, I would be really interested in having like a head engineer for the label, like the, uh, the mastering engineer that does everything. Because a, as you listen through an album and master an album, each song influences the other on what the whole thing is going to be. Right. Now, in the same way, each release from a label is going to be influencing what the label is. Mm. And if you have somebody who's already used to thinking in that in those terms about making an album cohesive, they're naturally going to start being like, oh, this is another song's thing. Yeah, I know yeah. Scott, Scott's vibe. We're, we're heading in this direction yeah. with the sound of everything. And you have somebody that's on your team that's making sure that like the vibe check is always done. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. On every release, not just every song, but every release, you know? That is a fantastic point. And I would, I would say the same thing for a graphic designer on, at a record label so that like you could spot an album at a record store and go, oh, I bet you I know who that is. I know that label, uh, you know, there's labels who do that with the, the stickers or the OB strips or just the, the package of the vinyl. But you're right about the tone and the feel of, of releases sounding consistent, even if that consistency is lo-fi. Even if that consistency is every record sounds like it's been done on a task cam, that's okay. That's that's the same yeah. point. I, I love that idea. And it is absolutely, it's a beautiful thing. And we got that way with our record label um, a little while ago, uh, sonically as well, where people just could rely on a certain type of sound, wasn't necessarily like a high bar. Um, and, uh, yeah, great, great point. And, and, and that can be achieved with mastering for sure. Yeah, it can. And <clears throat> another thing that's really interesting is that this whole like task of trying to make things cohesive, because sometimes you get an album that is very versatile mm. and even you'll have one, a lo-fi song, one song and the next song's like hi-fi sounding and yeah. kind of that kind of thing. But there's almost always common elements that you can draw together to make it a cohesive whole. And that it's it's such an interesting thing when you make it happen. And so you could have a, a label that has like a blues band and then there's like some like EDM artist, but there's a way to make it feel like it's all part of the set. Like if the if the label has a goal yeah. for the, what's going on, yeah. you can usually make it happen. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, Agreed. there could be label owners that are just like, it, we're transparent records. Hey, we don't want to have a sound. <laughs> you know, uh, you know what? I talk to a lot of record labels who say that, who they don't yeah. want to have a sound and that they want to um yeah. I I it my preference is is the blue note model, or there's a lot of like indie electronic labels who do this, or punk labels who who have yeah. like everything is consistent. Yeah. For me as a music customer, I prefer that. But there's a lot yeah, of people who don't want that. Yeah. Yeah, like um, I remember being a, before I was an audio engineer or even a musician, you know, like listening to music, well, I, whatever. Um, but like before I was thinking about it this way, I remember being shocked by a band's next album and how it sounded. Right. You know, like yeah. uh, my, the one that comes to mind is uh, Double Platinum by Lagwagon. And, and, and skate punk was like really consistent like that. Sure. And maybe not a consistently good sound either. But when, when Double Platinum came out, it just sounded so different than all their other albums. It, like I like, it took me like three or four listens 
to just start hearing the songs because I was just trying to get used to the new sound. Right, right, right. And that bothers you? Know? you? Does that bother you when bands do um, that? Actually, I love how that album sounds. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's very artistically shaped, right? Right, right, right. right but um, right. yeah, it, it, it bothered me at the time. And the question is um, what the label's goal is. Like what target audience, what mm. audience are you targeting? Of course, there's a business for everybody. Yeah. Yep. And um, when you, like, so when you're delivering skate punk to skate punk fans, yeah, they wanted everything to be the same. That's what they wanted at the time. So it was a shock. Yep. But you're listening to Radiohead, don't, like, please don't make it the same. Right, that's true. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, there's, there's, yep. it all depends on what the band's goal is, what the label's goal is, and everything like that. But you got to be able to do it if it's the thing you need to get done. Yeah. So you don't have people in your corner if you don't have people in your pocket to do this for you. When the time comes to do it, you won't have practiced it. You won't be used to it. You won't have the connections. You're going to be starting from scratch and we yeah. shouldn't be starting from scratch. Yeah. Beautiful. Love it. Uh, you know, I, I think we're we're finally getting to the to the place where we can demystify this mastering process. <laughs> and it's all to the internet because, I mean, it was like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that nobody knew what the heck you guys did. I mean, you didn't even have to do anything. You could just <laughs> have a black room, the song comes in and comes out and you charge money for it. <laughs> anyway, our well, I'll, I'll, um, our listeners will know all about you and, and uh, I'll, I'll be sure to mention that. But thank you so much for doing this. It's been so great to chat with you. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Thank you, Scott. And it's always a good time talking with you. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you got something out of it. Maybe we demystified the world of mastering a little bit for you. It's kind of a necessary evil. It's not an evil. It's just necessary sometimes. So that was kind of interesting to hear John say that if we want to be prolific and release like remixes or stems or, you know, like lo-fi stuff, we don't necessarily have to get it professionally mastered as a way to save money. I love when John said that money doesn't need money shouldn't interfere with our creativity and it shouldn't ever shouldn't ever be a barrier i love that that was really cool so many great insights go to otherrecordlabels.com mastering where you can learn about john and transparent mastering reach out to them uh, and 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 work with him i highly recommend him um, but you go to otherrecordlabels.com mastering where i'll have my takeaways from today's episode as well as a way to find out more about transparent mastering Thanks for listening.